0: G'day and welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life and those in life chat music and more. I'm John Merch and today you may have heard the 5, 10, even 15 minute parts of this conversation. You're going to hear the whole lot if you stick on through with our guest who is a musician turned academic turned author. Also, if you're expecting to hear the Bill Tolson chat, that is next episode. I've bumped it one if you're expecting to hear it this time round. Let's dive in.
1: Another Song About Love, a novel that looks at the Melbourne music scene of the 1980s through the penmanship of a retired academic, poet, and reportedly also one of the first women in Australia to play the electric guitar in a folk club. Janie Conway Heron grew up with brothers Mick and Jim Conway, and the latter of the two features on the recordings that make up a full-length album of originals that accompany the book. Her first full-length novel was Beneath the Grace of Clouds, published in 2010. She has a doctorate in creative writing from Western Sydney University. That sparked a passion for both teaching and mentoring students at Southern Cross University. And today, in an unscripted chat, Janie weaves the narratives of their life as well as shares some of the experiences that surely influenced the words and music of another song about love.
0: Dr. Jenny Conway Heron, thanks very much for joining Radio Notes. Thank you, John. Doctor of Creative Writing. So, when did you pen your first words? Do you remember what your first bit of creative writing was? That was substantial. Oh my-
2: My goodness, that goes back way before I got a piece of paper saying I could do it. (laughs) I think um, I was writing poetry and song, verse and poetry for a long time before, you know, probably as a teenager, actually, always loved writing and loved reading. I had a, a mother who loved reading too, so... There was a culture of reading and writing in my family, though no published authors in that way, but just uh, a love of the written word, um, as well as the love of music. So I grew up around it. When I first I wrote, I know I wrote an essay. I thought I was so clever, an essay on nothing, whether there could actually be nothing, because you couldn't write about nothing. You had to be writing about something and I remember feeling deeply philosophical and I think I was probably about 10 or 11. <laughs> so maybe that's the first. Oh, there's probably before that there was something else.
0: Did you hand up nothing or did you hand up something?
2: I handed up something. I handed up the impossibility of nothing. I think I don't know where that essay is now, but I remember writing it.
0: <laughs> what was the teacher's response at the time? Were you a bit of a a teacher's pet, or were you quite the opposite at those days?
2: um God, I don't remember the teacher's response actually. I think I was mo- mostly enamoured with my own <laughs> um, but I did very, very well in the in English all the way through school, which is so you know, to later in life end up with a PhD in creative writing makes perfect sense in terms of my life trajectory. Though if you'd met me in my 20s, you probably, I would have said that would have been the last thing that would have happened.
0: There was a lot going on in your 20s though. We will cover that as well. We're going to fly now to 1982. You had two applications, one to the university and one to the Housing Commission. They both were accepted. Which one was more exciting?
2: <laughs> oh, like they went together perfectly. I have to say, recently Adam Band put out the um, Radical Green idea for the future, sort of thing, and I thought they're all the things that Goff Whitlam did back in those days. And I am a product of that because I was had been a musician for a long time, and I was really finding hard struggling to make ends meet and to keep my son you know in in clothing and a place to live and all of those kinds of things he's on the brink of becoming a teenager and I thought if I keep on with the music and keep on doing that music um, I may end up being okay financially but I may not and it, it could be disastrous. I need something more in my life. So I've got something more substantial. I need to get a proper job. Now, I used to tell my university prospective students this story as well because it was it was just to make them feel more comfortable about their choice. So I decided to go to university. I didn't think I'd get in because I didn't really finish school properly, really. Um, so, But I did. And that was fantastic. But at the same time, I hired for public housing because I was virtually on the streets. I was actually just living in a room of a friend's house with my son and all our worldly belongings. I had a friend coach me and say to me, Now, you mustn't s- sound like you're okay when you're going for public housing. You know, don't say, Oh, it's okay, I'll be all right. You have to really make them know what the situation you are in. I applied for that as well and got both and that provided me with a roof over my head a kind of safety for study and a way to bring up my son as well so I sort of moved over into university work which I was quite nervous about at first but absolutely loved you know once I realized what was going on I was you know really enjoying it
0: There's quite of a seesaw as you're saying on one hand you had to serve not justify, but be honest about the situation you were living in. But at the same time, the university wanted to know about your stability and that you would actually be committed to your education at the same time. (laughs) That's two different sides of a a particular spectrum of life at that very point. From that, as we said, you ended up getting a doctorate in creative writing and also getting the chance to teach others as well. At this point, can we talk about that? So we're in the university years at the moment and you're now retired and that will be where we talk about the album and the latest music. But at this particular point, what were you getting at that time when you were in the university structure from teaching?
2: Well, first of all, I learned a lot. I didn't really know how much I learned until I started teaching. I think I was so lucky to go to the University of Technology at that time. The course was such a good course for me because it made sense of my previous life and everything that I wrote. I'd also come from um, being involved in Rock Against Racism, the organisation in Sydney that helped Indigenous bands get uh, being known and seen Mm. in the world of music. And so it also gave me a platform to express my burgeoning interest in Indigenous issues, which is became sort of lifelong, still with me now. So that was sort of the background into which I went into teaching and teaching not only creative writing but post-colonial studies and cultural studies and all the units that we taught in creative writing were culturally embedded, if you know what I mean. So that was the way we taught. And so I was also lucky to arrive at Southern Cross Uni at that particular time when... The units and everything were being fashioned in a particular way. So I was able to provide a pretty good grounding for creative writing students to come in and, and write about what was important to them.
0: I joined Janie today on the lands of the Ghana people. I'm wondering if you could tell us where you join us from and the uh, cultural significance of the area for your particular community for which you live.
2: I live in on Widgeble Wildball Country. I should have acknowledged that I'm on Widgeable Wildbull Country, I acknowledge the elders past, present and emerging from this Country, It's um, Widgeable Wildwood Country is part of the Bunjalung Nation. So that's the, the language country that we're on. It's a beautiful country and I fell in love with this country a long, long time ago. It started coming up when my son was a small child and always wanted to live up here. Uh, it wasn't really until I was doing my PhD, um, got a job at the university that I could move up and live here. But that's when I kind of left everything in Sydney and came up here.
0: <laughs> and you've done that throughout the years, this transporting yourself from one part of the east coast of Australia to the other. I don't think you've had the pleasures of being here amongst uh, the Adelaide Plains as well as the Adelaide Hills. But
2: I have. I haven't lived there, but I, I loved it. Yeah, I loved the Adelaide Hills. When I was in Stiletto, we often came across to South Australia and did shows. It's been a while since I've been there. The last time I went there was to travel with a friend up to Broome, a friend from South Australia, another academic involved in in Indigenous issues. So that was some time ago. So I haven't been for a while, but I do like South Australia very much.
0: Let's talk about academic and Indigenous issues, how important the university academic structure can be on the education of Indigenous issues and how it's important for Indigenous people to be engaged with the university sector?
2: Oh, it's totally, it's totally important. For me, it was inextricable, you know. I had to, it had to be there. I could not not have taught the subject that I was teaching without being involved in Indigenous literature. So I've got a pretty extensive collection of Indigenous literature on my bookshelves and elsewhere, and it, it really influenced me. It also influenced me in the writing of Beneath the Grace of Clouds. That whole book came out of my experience with Indigenous people, particularly the people in Rock Against Racism, who were musicians but who were saying to me, you need to find out about your background. You need to find out who you are. Many of them thought that I was Indigenous. I thought I was Indigenous. (laughs) uh, Look, I explore that in Beneath the Grace Mm. of Clouds. I explore the idea of what it means to grow up non-Indigenous, become aware of what has happened to Indigenous people and then have Indigenous people themselves say, you know, we think you're Indigenous, you should find that out because I had a mysterious grandmother who hid her whole identity. So that's what that book centred on and it was part of my PhD and the PhD involved writing a novel and then writing theoretical thesis on the novel, you know, kind of framing it theoretically and uh, culturally. So I called it Belongings, plural, deliberately, because of this kind of idea that p- people think their belonging comes from only one place, and I wanted to kind of extend it out to that.
0: That's a debut novel from about 2010. And the other thing I was thinking yeah. in terms of indigenous issues or indigenous culture, particularly in that of creative writing, is that there is over 100 languages across Australia, and to actually 50,
2: I think. Thank you. <laughs>
0: let's say hundreds of Indigenous languages across the country and how through the academic prism you're able to communicate each of their own through their own understanding of who they are and how they fit into the land, the culture and who they themselves think they are.
2: I think they do it extremely well under great difficulty. For an example, when I first moved up – or well, my first trip to the North Coast when my son was about three. I think we came together on the train. I've written about that, like the, the the feeling of arriving in the North Coast and what it was what it was like, and then coming to this place, which had landmarks like Mount Warning. Oh, what's Mount Warning? You know, it was actually Mount Warning in a sense that drew me to the place because I put my finger on a map and it landed there. But it's actually called Wollomba and I kept thinking, what are the Indigenous stories of this place? But, you know, almost everywhere I was walking, everywhere you walk in Australia there are Indigenous stories. You're walking on Indigenous country and you're walking yeah. in amongst those stories and a lot of the time we don't know what they are and those stories are tragic and wonderful as well and, and magic and otherwise. So I I had some wonderful teachers, indigenous teachers, people like Poet Maureen Watson, the whole of the Watson Bales family, who um many people will know that that Rock Against Racism was my introduction to them, but before that people like uh, the people in No Fixed Address, Bart Willoughby, which who's, you know, basically from South Australia. And that College of Music in South Australia, I began to see things and know things. So nowadays, people are much more aware of where they are, and you know, in general, non-Indigenous people. Indigenous people, some those who've been taken away from their country, have to find all that out again. But there's a lot of awareness about that. Not enough being done about closing the gap or anything like that. The The recent Black Lives Matter marches are really, really important to making sure I think there's a kind of post-colonial voice happening globally. I'm really happy about that, but I'm sad that it has to be still voiced in such a way and it can't be turned around and made very different. I'm hoping we're in the process of that.
0: The reason why I raise where we started on that bit of conversation is that of stories through song, for which is nothing new for that of the Indigenous populations how you see song as being the vehicle for the story. Where do you fit those two?
2: Well, I could answer that in a a lot of ways because I've written a lot of different songs. So I'll start with a song that I wrote called the Eddie Murray song, which is not in that collection Mm. that goes with the novel. With the Eddie Murray song, I wrote that after I'd been to War, to Cotton Country, And uh, just after Eddie had been found dead in a police cell Mm. and I spent a lot of time along with other people in Rock Against Racism with the Murray family to begin uh, the court cases that ended up in in two inquests in which, you know, the final proclamation was that he was killed by person or persons unknown in a police cell. I mean, how do I write about that in a song? I've just found, I sat and sat and sat with it and with the words until the story came and told the story as best I could using, of course, a sort of reggae song background. So in, in that, the music and the song and the story all go together. But I was absolutely horrified by what was going on and you know it was another eye-opening moment. So I thought it was important to tell that story through songs. I think that time I was in Wee War was the only time in my life I've been really afraid, afraid for my own life because of the racism that was in that country, um, you know, and in that town around what was going down. It was quite, quite frightening. But I wrote about that in Beneath the Grace of Clouds as well. So the story is longer but what songs do is distill the moments and the thoughts in the same way as poetry does, I think. And so you often develop a chorus that will have a line like that one had about the, writes about the family and it has this repeated thing about now they're crying out for justice, hearts are filled with sorrow. And then if we
0: move to the current book, which has its own album with it, the songs within that (laughs) album are, I I guess, takeaway reminders. You don't have to be reading the chapter at the time, but once you've read it, you'll be reminded through the song.
2: That's right, and it, it just takes an essence of each chapter and uses a song to tell. Not, it's not always telling you the story of the chapter. In fact, it very rarely does. It's just taking up the theme and, and exploring the theme in a different way because song and poetry is a different mode altogether to novel and story writing. It can be similar, but mm. for me usually it's more distilled than that.
0: The album itself a bit of a family affair let's walk through that you've got your brother involved
2: yes my brother Jim Conway who's a a renowned harmonica player how lucky am I eh, to have him playing with us and I I mean it's luckier in more ways than one well you
0: can't choose your family allegedly but if you're going to choose them you might as well have Jim Conway on board
2: Uh, yeah that's right that's right and you know we've played together over the years a, a lot and When Jim plays with me, I feel like he's totally in tune with my way of thinking melodically. He always does exactly what I would. I can't play, i but if I could play, I would play what Jim plays. And so that's really good. And it was really fantastic to be able to have him at this stage of his um, having an MS actually playing um, in the studio with us. It was wonderful. So I'm really pleased to be able to do that.
0: Can you talk to us about that studio environment and working alongside your brother? How the tracks were, I guess, laid down, or or what the interaction was between you and your brother during the recording of these tracks?
2: It wasn't just me and my brother; it was my son as well. Tamlin is—he was the producer. I'll go back a little bit to where how I ended up with these fifteen songs. I was in the middle of writing the the book, so the novel came well. Some of the songs were already there but the novel came first and in originally what I had was well-known 80s songs in this kind of like a, a top ten kind of list, you know, uh, so it would read like that. That was my idea. It was a sort of bit of an out there framing of it. And then I was looking and, and this thought came to me one day while I was writing, what if my own songs fitted there? Oh yeah. well, Janie Maybe oh Janie, you don't you don't
0: have any experience in playing musical instruments or songwriting. Why would you think that?
2: <laughs> uh, well that's exactly what I did. I I went then, oh I've got all these songs and sure enough, of course, they did fit they fitted very well. The next thing I thought was um, my son who's who's a really good producer and a fantastic musician as well, I'll record with him. So firstly what happened was that Tamlin and I went into Zen Studios in Maritville, which is a rehearsal studio that has recording facilities there, and we put down the basic tracks, the two of us, just the two of us. So my son played drums, at bass, guitar. I played guitar and sang. We put down, like, the basic tracks. The next person that we called in was my brother.
0: To be sitting there and being creative with your son, one of the closest people in your life, what was that like?
2: Wonderful, wonderful. And he knew quite a lot of those songs, like some of the songs were old songs he remembers from his childhood and from growing up. In fact, the Eagle Song, which is the last track on the collection and the last chapter in the book, because it's a theme of eagles and watching eagles which I, I won't tell too much about without giving it away, but I wrote The Eagle Song quite a long time ago and when my son had wanted to learn guitar, he asked me to teach him and I taught him a few simple chords, not wanting to be too complicated, and he goes, no, Mum, I want to learn The Eagle Song. I really want to learn The Eagle Song. And I thought, oh, no, that's too co- It's quite complicated musically, but I taught him anyhow within two days he was playing it. So you can imagine there's that history with that song. He'd heard it. He, he knew what he wanted to do with it. And he did wonderful things with all the songs. But he also had connections with fantastic studio musicians, you know, So it's like Stuart Van de Graaff and Jess Champer, uh, just wonderful Pete Jim Pennell. So the atmosphere in the studio for this project was the best I have ever experienced. Uh, because I'm fairly nervous about performance and things like that, and in the past, my experience in studios has been quite traumatic <laughs> in some ways, like mm. just just because of uh, and I did explore that in the novel the 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 kind of psychology of being in the studio, so this was a really good experience and a really great thing to do actually.
0: Then the brother comes to the studio. That's another layer. And as you said, the son is still there. So I guess, uncle, is that how it works? Yes. So the son's recording the uncle together?
2: They had already done that in uh, the last CD, Jim Conway's Big Wheel. He did a lot of work on that with Jim. So they'd worked together before. So that was kind of, uh, they they knew each other musically as well. Uh,
0: for our international listener, this is no small fry. Jim Conway is like quite, quite a major star. But having said that, Janie who joins us today is a bit of a, a legend in her own lunchbox. I hope, that, I hope that comes across as a compliment.
2: That's something my brother Mick would say. He always used to say that, that phrase. <laughs> yeah,
0: John Vincent, various other broadcasters of the time. Um, history would have you as the first female in Australia to play the electric guitar and the first to be kicked out of a <laughs> folk centre for doing so. Fact uh, or fiction? Fact.
2: The, the Victoria Museum did this exhibition called Rock Chicks which I was offended by, being a really good feminist. You don't use that, but they insisted. I thought that was very ironic. They put it in that I had, but I always have this sneaky, like surely I couldn't have been the first woman to play electric guitar. That can't be right, you know. uh, In Australia, though, you know, maybe. wouldn't, Wouldn't there have been women playing in jazz bands back in the 30s? I did look. I haven't found anything.
0: But Electric but guitar I feel in certain jazz? That it's
2: not. Yeah. Those old, you know, Epiphone, you know, jazz guitars, yeah. I can see it, <laughs> but I can't see it, you know. So, um, yeah. So that's like, yes, that's fact. I didn't get thrown out of Frank Trainers for playing electric guitar, but for playing electric dulcimer. Appalachian Dulcimer comes from the Appalachian Mountains in America, and I there are there's films of me playing. I played it a lot, but when you put it up against a guitar, it's hard to get the volume. So we thought idea we put like a violin. This is with my first husband Carl Carl Meriad. We had this band myriad which Carl was Tamlin's father. So Mm -hmm. and we. Sorry to interrupt.
0: I, I wasn't going to mention it, but since you have, I will. I actually have your record. <laughs> really? You, I saw the cover and I just went, that looks familiar. I just can't remember if I put it under M for Myriad as in the band or under C for hit, my record collections. But, yeah, I've got it somewhere.
2: Oh, great. That's good because, uh, yeah, it's apparent it was apparently groundbreaking. But you don't know that you are groundbreaking when you're doing it.
0: Why was it groundbreaking?
2: Because we of the way we electrified instruments. Remember Harvest, that album Harvest? Neil Young that, one? Yeah, the Neil Young one. That we just went, we wanna do that. You know. We've we're folk singers, we wanna do that. We wanna play electric instruments. So I just got a guitar and plugged it in. I got an electric guitar and plugged it in. That's I just played it like an acoustic guitar to start off with. Then When I was really, when I was in stiletto, I learned how to play electric guitar. And it's very different. It's a completely different way of playing.
0: So we'll be very clear. History has you as the first woman to play electric guitar, not just in rock, but ever in Australia. (laughs) And then obviously uh, you getting kicked out was for the instrument that you played or the style, I should say, of music that you were playing at the folk club.
2: And it was during the controversy when Bob Dylan was controversial because he went electric and stuff. It was around that time I can't couldn't really put all the all the dates, looking back sometimes they just concertina up. But, was around that time and so yeah it was a bit controversial what we did.
0: Bob Dylan has a brand new record out. Emma Swift has covered one of the songs off it and I'll put details in the show notes regarding that side note.
1: Radio Notes, released first as podcast, can also be heard on radio worldwide. Your granddaughter's
0: done the yes. cover for the book. The,
2: the image, yeah, yeah.
0: This is an amazing visual artist. I know I say a lot of the times check out the show notes but There's a link there. Her representation of the female form is so intuitive. How do you feel about the book cover and and what she has to offer? Obviously, you're biased as a grandma, but...
2: I went to visit her in Sydney and she was doing some new work and she took me into her studio to have a look at her work and I went, oh, in the back of my head, what I thought immediately is, oh, my God, she's expressing in image what I'm trying to say in words. It was a no-brainer. <laughs> like, can I have one of these images for the cover? Will you do it? And, uh, so so uh, Ben Ellis, who worked on the actual design of the cover.
0: He's from Tall Story.
2: He's up here. So he's somebody I was working with up here. Worked with Bashti and we got that cover. It's beautiful. actually got um, the proof copies and it feels beautiful too. <laughs> it's like oh, this is nice.
0: (laughs) You've obviously been in her studio. I've seen works where there's like a very defined circle representing the head of a female form, which I found very striking. Maybe it's just my taste in that kind of art. But what kind of studio space does she keep? Oh,
2: she lives in a house um, uh, that with her, her friend. It's a house that's owned by her friend's um, parents and one of them is an artist and so there's a studio space in the front area so she's got a, a big room that she can do her artwork in and so she's able to do that she's landed on her feet it's wonderful actually so I'm really really glad for her at the age of 23 she is now
0: what was Janie doing at the age of 23 you were into the rock and roll by that stage
2: I was certainly um, touring with Myriad and very pregnant, about to give birth to my son. And we had the album of all the wounded people coming out as well. That's what was happening for us then.
0: The Second World War, growing up just after that particular time and the world's trying to refine and redefine what it's all about, what were those younger, not necessarily teenage years, what were those younger years like
2: When I was born, I was born Janie Ahrens and um, my father worked for, he was a wool buyer and he managed a wool buying firm but at that stage he worked for a German company and someone came out from Germany who who was an ex-Nazi and said to the people out here, what are you doing with a Jew in the the firm? This is in in the 1950s. Suddenly my father was ostracised. He was a very hard worker and... There, there's no way, there, but he was suddenly taken from being in the centre of things to being on the periphery and he was very upset about it and my mother, being very pragmatic, as she was, um, said, you're not a practising um, Jew, you not. You don't practise the Jewish religion, um, why don't you change your name? So my father, who would refused to change his name during the war, even though my grandmother wanted him to, and his brother had been, been killed in the war, all of that, he changed his name. His, his name was Conway Norman Aarons, but everyone always called him Jim, so he just put his first name as his last name. And that's how he ended up being Conway's. I was five when that happened, so I was old enough to kind of know something serious was going on about names and about identity. And it struck me. Then about, around about ten, I read the diary of Anne Frank, which she was writing when she was about 10. And I remember thinking, if I'd have been in Europe during that time, I would have been her. That could have been me. So those sorts of things really made me really involved in the idea of human rights and things, which I think has been really important to me all all along my, my whole life, really.
0: Very much a thread from that point onwards obviously as you just said in your life and and also the communities for which you've decided to dedicate parts of your life to what's been the reward giving your time and your heart to those issues
2: oh immense reward no really I have met the most amazing people through my interest in those sorts of things I mean if I hadn't have been interested Like through music and Rock Against Racism, I got to meet all these Indigenous people. I got to really understand something that I don't think it would have been easy to understand so viscerally had I not done that. Something we haven't touched on, but um, since 2004, I've been going and teaching creative writing, helping Burmese refugees, mainly women refugees, tell their stories, and that's expanded now a bit to being LGBTQI people as well. And it's been extraordinary to know and be, and the people I've met have just been amazing. So that's the reward for me. I'm just totally curious about people. It was the same with teaching, meeting amazing people, hearing extraordinary stories. In the beginning of Beneath the Grace of Clouds, the narrator says, I'm a collector of stories. So my reward is is that, definitely.
0: Because there's definitely that crossroad of identity storytelling, so that of what someone may be or classed as to the deeper meaning of their own story being expressed. How have you seen that enlightened through the writing process, maybe for yourself or for others that you've been able to teach? The hardest thing for me has
2: been telling The story of Lily Bloom in this, because it centres around my own experience of the music industry. It came up, it was sort of came off an earlier work that was an experimental work with memory that I'd done for my masters. And I thought I would just develop that into a a novel. But my problem with it is feeling like the concerns that concern me in writing another song about love are they still concerns or should I be writing something much more serious? Because when you're working with people who's been through life-threatening situations, you know, it makes me feel like, well, I feel like I live and I do a white privileged life. (laughs) Even the education I've had was available to me because of who I was. So life in the music industry as a woman was a battle and I might have, you know, uh, played electric guitar before other women did it and that kind of thing. I, I didn't consciously do it that way. But now, like writing about that difficulty when people are fighting for their lives and the Black Lives Matter is ha- happening and all those things, it feels a little bit strange, you know, like, but you, so it's very easy to discount the importance of your own story, I think. Another song about love is actually really an exploration of self-doubt in a way. Lily Bloom goes through a whole thing where she wants to do all these things but all time and time again the sense of not being good enough kind of whether it's as a woman or as a mother or as a whatever, it brings her undone, you know. And uh, that, that, that is a limitation. It's an inner limitation on things. Um, but I just feel absolutely compelled to tell stories. I don't, you know, I'm already thinking about what I'm going to do next. Even though I found this whole the whole process of getting this all out here, out into the world, uh, um, stressful. And sometimes I think, well, I am 72, and <laughs> why do I want all this stress? <laughs> you know. But um, I just want to share stories,
0: Doctor Jenny. Conway Heron is our very special guest on Radio Notes. Let's head to the 1970s. Uh, born in 48, but the 1970s seems like a good rockin' old time. Stiletto and Scarlet were on the horizon for you. A fun fact, I found that Stiletto had a promo 7-inch with Red Simons. of. That's right. Now, he would have been either about to go into the Skyhooks or had just left the Skyhooks. What's your relationship with former ABC broadcaster Red Simons?
2: Very close one, or was, once, but um, as a friend and a fellow Gemini. We shared a birthday party once. That was good. I had a Gemini birthday party in my place and there were all these luminary Geminis. But, no, he was actually a a great mentor for me, Uh, like as somebody wanting to play electric guitar, as a woman wanting to play electric guitar and wanting to play complex chords and wanting to do that kind of thing, he was somebody who was always there to give me Hints, he, some, some of the things he told me were really helpful. He was the first person who told me to learn to play to a click track. I thought that was crazy. I was a folk singer. You know, folk singers slow down when to a moat and speed up. when <laughs> They don't have a click track and play exactly in time. So he told me to do that. He also said about performance, like don't, um, you, you can't be a, a performer unless you're willing to make a fool of yourself. I remember him saying that. But Stiletto was also like an a female. Well, it wasn't. We weren't all women, but it was um, a band modeled on Skyhooks, with lots of women in it, and we were all in Pram Factory. You know that wonderful theatre group thing. Jane Clifton and I started Stiletto. As how it happened was a supper show in the back of, in the back theatre of the Pram Factory, and. It was the the two nights were sold out, and so we went, oh, maybe we better make a band out of this. But we were very influenced, and Andrew Bell, who was the guitarist in Stiletto, was very close to Red Simon. We were all very in each other's pockets a lot. Jenny Keith, bless her, she's since passed away, but she was Red's partner at the time. became a very close friend of mine up here. Clifton, yeah. I
0: think, uh, from Prisoner.
2: Oh, Jane Clifton had just been not long before that band being in Prisoner, yeah. But Jane, she sang with us in the toured with Myriad, you know, so that's how we kind of, in in, in my band with Carl, and then um, uh, we just started to do duet things together in the supper shows at the Pram Factory. They to, you know, do a little sort of comedy skit, which then, you know, and sing songs, which then uh, became a kind of front piece of stiletto.
0: To be clear, what were they called? Suffra shows?
2: The Suffra shows. They were like Sunday night.
0: Okay. My
2: head was hearing
0: Suffragette.
2: We were to be, meant to be a feminist band um, and we were. We did, you know, I wrote a song that called Premenstrual Blues that was actually for a um, film called Seeing Red, Feeling Blue. Jane Eyre was the director she said to me one day, what I want is a kind of blues song about having the, the premenstrual blues. So that I did it and it's, I still do it. I still sing it. It's like a walking blues kind of thing.
0: There was another yeah. song you did back then, but I don't have it in my notes. Um, along those lines?
2: Woman in Trouble, Goodbye Johnny, and Woman in a Man's World, that was another one of mine. That song, Woman in a Man's World, probably tells the story of another song about love in a song. And it was written all that time back then. It was about like how it was because um, Marnie Sheehan, who was the bass player then, and myself, we had kids and we had to get to the gig on time and there were not, there was no childcare. There's not much now. There was none then. And so if you want, and you couldn't not turn up to the gig or go a bit late or something, you had to be there. And rehearsals as well. So get all dressed up and. You know, that kind
0: of do you think that influenced your son's interest in music?
2: No, I think it was a deterrent. (laughs) I think he resisted the music for quite a long time. That's people would say to him, Oh yes, Tammany, you're gonna be a musician too. No. No, no. (laughs) And then he he succumbed and once he succumbed to the beautiful side of what music is. But he had the same problems. He's got five children. It's really difficult to have five children and make a living out of music. So he has to do other things besides that. And it's hard. It means he's worked around the clock.
0: What was the turnover between Stiletto and Scarlet? What was the difference between the two?
2: Stiletto was a band where most people in the band contributed songs and we co-wrote songs. And so it, the, the, the whole songwriting aspect and of it was a group affair. Also, while I was the first woman to play electric guitar, I didn't play or want to play the kind of electric guitar that Andrew wanted to have. You know, he wanted to have someone that he could do guitar duels with and that kind of thing. I wasn't good at that, still not, didn't want to. I didn't pursue that part of it and in the end, well, I, I was virtually asked to leave stiletto. So then what I did was get together with the original bass player in stiletto Marnie and um, we started another band called Scarlet, which had various incarnations. Then I moved up to Sydney, started another version of Scarlet up there that became another band called Face Dancers. So I had a lot of, you know, once I'd left Stiletto, I had a lot of bands, but they weren't very high profile bands. That's that history. But Scarlet really was my songs and Marnie's songs.
0: Whilst well, doing my research, I noticed for $770 in a place in Sydney, you can buy the newsstand splash for Jane Conway and one of the bands from Struth Magazine. They did a splash for, for one of your outings.
2: Say that again?
0: Yep. So, so for 770 bucks, and I'll put the link in the show notes because I rang up to make sure it's real, and there's so many great posters. In the old days, outside news agencies that have like a splash...
2: Oh no, I know what you're talking about. My god, is that for sale? It's for $700. 770.
0: 770 bucks and there's also one for your other band as well.
2: Cuz that the artist who did that poster is still a really good friend of mine and he is so poor. <laughs>
0: I understand where they're coming from Because obviously it's a piece of history So let's give credit there they, They're selling a piece oh, yeah. of history yeah, sure. Good on them <laughs> But the flip side of that very coin Literally that coin Is that the artist who did it for Struth, I guess
2: No, they're... it's not Struth it's Struth was was a play on Truth magazine Struth, Scarlet Fever Hits Town That's the one? Yeah Is
0: that it? Uh, yes ah! So I was on the dog and bone with the, the seller seller today <laughs> and he was saying it was uh, outside the news agent because of course he doesn't know. He thought there was a, a newspaper called Struth. Now I was thinking truth and so I started talking to him about page three girls in truth and how struth would have had to be a parody of that magazine and he lost me at that point. So let's get the truth on Struth.
2: Sorry when I've recovered. <laughs> I can't wait to tell Alan. That is so funny. That is really funny. Oh, sorry. (laughs) hysterical. Um, Yeah, no, it was was an ad for a gig, so I would have the gigs underneath. (laughs) So Stiletto
0: was a good time, though,
2: being in that band. Oh, yeah. No, well, Jane and and I started it and we just got other musos and things. Yeah, it was great. And we were really popular from the word go. You know, some... My experience is sometimes you ride the wave, you know, you ride on the top of the wave and you're riding it in, and certainly with that band we did. But it actually got a bit, I guess really the, the differences, we got a bit sort of complicated with one another about feminism, about where that might go. I mean, we were incredibly popular all up and down the East Coast for the songs that we sang about women like premenstrual blues and, Goodbye, Johnny, and Woman in Trouble. Woman in Trouble had this performed thing in the middle that Jane and, and I did, and I won't repeat what, what we used to say in that, but we used all the phrases that had been said to us as, as women by men as we walked by. When we asked the, the guys in the band to do it so we could act out being the women either reacting or not reacting to it, they wouldn't do it, so we used to do it. And uh, we had this particular line that I won't say that was like then to go back into the instrumental and things. But, um, you know, we're performing Concerns for Women in second wave feminist era, you know, and we did a lot of gigs where that was necessary.
0: How do you feel about some of those leading lights of the 1970s feminist movement and where they are today? Do you feel like... Like with some good bands that maybe they should just stick with their hit singles.
2: Oh, um, yes, yes, I do. Uh, I get, I get an annoyed with this idea of being elders and having this respect and not looking to where young people are coming from and, and the way in which that. Younger women's voices can be a bit stifled by uh, older women, you know. But at the same time, the notion of respecting your elders. Things have changed, life has changed, you know. Um, And so I I would want to know that there were women coming up that were sort of following on and changing and having their own way of dealing with it. And I certainly find that with my granddaughters, they're all very aware of things.
0: Because you had a very that,
2: different world.
0: Because you had that time at a mature age within the university sector to the heights of being a doctor, I guess you also have the understanding of the reference point of that material, but also, as you're saying, as someone who's a proponent of blended education, looking at different methods of actually providing education, you need to listen to the new ways of doing things whilst you're going through that process to have a reference, but understand how it fits into a modern context. Well, I
2: hope that as a teacher, I was the reference, that I could be an eyewitness, give younger people an eyewitness account of what happened. But sometimes that might backfire a bit on me because I would assume knowledge that younger people might not have. Like I can remember talking about 1988, <laughs> the bicentennial, and the walk up across the bridge and looking around at my class and there was sort of this look on most of their faces. It seemed to say, what? What was that? I was using I was using that phrase interpolation. I don't know if you know that as a as a term, but it's about inserting yourself into the mainstream. Uh, black Lives Matter is an interpolation of of uh, people of black voices into the mainstream white um, white sort of narrative. Yeah. Um, and I was trying to explain that term for the students. And, um, I used the Bicentenary walk across the and I suddenly realized, oh yeah, that's very that seems very recent to me, but for them, they were probably five or ten or something at the most might not have might not have influenced them in the same way. I'm very proud of the young people at the moment, the ones who are coming up and talking. they're just wonderful, and they're fresh, and they remind me of myself with my all my ideals back then. I think the hardest thing for me now is to have had all that hope for change for so long and now realize that where are we what's happening you know this you know that's that can get me down a fair bit actually
0: (laughs) as a songwriter you have an outlet for expressing some of that emotion are you finding that easier to do over the years or have things become more complex that it's getting a little bit harder to do that
2: finding the songs aren't coming through when i was working as an academic I think I was so I used to work like 50 or 60 hours a week and that's pretty normal for most academics I don't think many of them work much less than that and so the time for just letting things come through didn't happen I have more time for that now but the writing of the novel and the recording all the songs sort of kind of took up all the space in my head and um Now what I'm finding is songs are coming through. And so I've been reading a lot about the Murray-Darling Basin and what's happening there. (laughs) Strangely enough, being a South Australian, that would Mm. interest you, I would imagine.
0: Top of my reading pile is from 1990, a whole academic book about the Murray-Darling Basin. So, yep.
2: My head's right oh, there. Oh, yeah, because there's that quarterly essay that was uh, Margaret Simmons wrote called Cry Me a River, The Tragedy of the Murray-Darling Basin. And because I was up there with We the war and the death in custody, and for me, the, the picture is coming together. But how I started playing the guitar and this song is coming, it's coming, but it might take a while. It takes a lot longer these days. Hi, I'm Rishi K. Sherway. And I'm Joshua Molina. We're from the West Wing Weekly, And you're currently listening to Radio Notes. Radio Notes, where those in music talk life, and those in life chat music, and more. You can join us on The West Wing Weekly for an episode-by-episode breakdown of the television show The West Wing. Josh was a star of the show, and we give you behind-the-scenes insights and deep dives into the issues raised in the storylines of the show. You can find us on radiotopia.fm or through your favorite podcaster. For now, back to John Merch and Radio Notes.
0: Talk me through, Janie, if you don't mind, one of the important organisations of my student politics days was NOWZA. What was your involvement? And- oh, yeah.
2: Well, NOWZA, it was an, um, a, a, an amazing organisation and I was at the very first conference and fairly much, I, I wasn't in the organising committee, but I was fairly much at the forefront being the women's officer at UTS at that time along with uh, my friend Debbie Stoddard, who I work with now in Autsi and Burma. She's the head of that NGO, Autsi and Burma. I was women's officer. She was the overseas students' officer around the time when student fees were being introduced for overseas students. And so we were very much against that. And and I remember going to that very first NAWSR conference. And it was amazing. They... Uh, made decisions by consensus, which was fairly difficult thing to do with hundreds and hundreds, of, but they did it. It was, of course, really well organised in that way. Yeah, it was a very important time. Does Nileser still exist? I'm not sure. Not sure, it, but... It did for a long time, you know.
0: What was your reasoning for doing student politics at that time?
2: Well, I think I got asked. <laughs> I I was um, always into it, like wherever there was, you know, change to be made or help to be given, coming also from the Rock Against Racism era as well, being a muse, I don't know, I just, I ended up being women's officer and if you ask me to do something, I'll do it well and so I got really involved with it. And that's how I came to know Debbie Stoddard, who was the Overseas Students Officer. But it was the time, at the time, when Dawkins was bringing in those reforms. And so there was a lot of action to be done around bringing in fees and things, and uh, first of all for overseas students and then for everyone. But as women's students, that was it was a really important thing. And I started a a women's room in the at UTS which was extremely controversial strangely enough a lot of the male students didn't seem to like there being a place for women to go student association was a little bit more sort of left of center and they appointed the women's officer but somehow they uh, decided to ha- elect a new women's officer after a couple of years or something, and I went for the position and then they, there was this other young woman who got up around the women's women's room thing and said, if I was women's officer, I wouldn't have a women's room because I think you know spaces should be open to everyone, there was all this kind of thing. She got voted on to be the women's officer. She was very young, and I was kind of voted out by the student association. but then all the women, I felt really sorry for her because all the women in the university at UTS kind of ganged up on her. They called a meeting and I sat in the back of the room while those women grilled her like it was quite, quite sad and she resigned her position and I took it up again.
0: Did you meet with her after that meeting to console, yeah, yeah, to console yeah. where she was coming from? And on that, did you implement any of the other ideas that she had?
2: Um, she didn't have them, though. That was the main one. I wasn't going to stop having the women's <laughs> room. <Sorry. laughs> so I noticed with your podcast that you, you have non-gendered language. That's very, very difficult to do. Um, I absolutely adore Tash Sultana and Tash Sultana prefers to be non-gendered. But like my my first, um, first time I saw Tash was in Melbourne Busky and my whole thing was, wow, look at that little woman there playing guitar like she does sort of thing. And so it was all in my mind, mm. totally gendered. And then um, I discovered on YouTube, some YouTube clip of Tash doing it. and I put it up on Facebook and got told that I was not to um, to refer to Tash as a, as a woman because of not, non-gender specific kind of mm-hmm. things, which I'm all for, but I I maybe this is one of the things of being my age. I just find it really difficult to not use the gendered pronoun. I find it hard and also because, for me, a lot of the battle was about being woman, being a woman who played guitar.
0: The new book and CD will be available together, one would think, from your website?
2: From my website, but also from other sources. I haven't quite worked out how I'm going to do that apart from my website, but I know like the, the books will be distributed through Lightning Source and that's where all the bookshops will be able to get it from but how to actually do the book and the CD or the downloads together. I've got also download cards that people will be able to buy from the shop. So I'm I'm still working on the best way to do that because it actually is much more difficult than I thought it would be in the end because what I wanted to do in the first place was have a book with the CD on the inside, which is very 1980s, you know. But that's actually hugely expensive to do. I just In the end, I just went, no.
0: Swinging down, there was that poetry collection that used to have a CD inserted in the front, and you know that was perfect. But you're absolutely right; not the cheapest thing to do.
2: Very, very expensive, and and then a lot of people started. They're not using CDs now, and people are going back to tape. And another song about love is written at the change, the technological change from tape and record to CD, and now CDs.
0: Aren't used. When you look back over those years as a female in the music industry, how much of a percent do you think that was reliant on your decisions you made within the music industry? And second to that, your experience thereof.
2: Yeah, as yeah. much as I
0: don't want to gender it, especially after our Tash Salter conversation, you were going through the music industry as a woman fighting hard for what you believed women should have the right to do and now there are members of our community that are like, well, totally don't want gender to be anything to do with it.
2: That's why I told that story about Tash because for me it was disappointing. Even though I'm all for for Tash, for them doing that, I, I get it. I get it totally. I, I had a PhD student wanting to write a novel, a non-gendered novel, and I retired before that student who actually did call herself a she but she wanted to do you know a whole novel I just couldn't imagine it but I was interested in how it would work grammatically um, and was looking for that other word that could be used but for me someone called me a triple x female you know didn't even have any of the y in there <laughs> and
0: <laughs> I'm sorry, you said you, you said triple X female and they're going, yeah, I, I know a couple who work in the porn industry and, and they're doing... <laughs> no, if you're a 4X, not. then you work as a bar girl in Brisbane.
2: <laughs> I just bullied a couple no, of 4X, mean, mate. No I, no, I didn't mean that. I meant like, you know, not having any the Y chromosome. Hey, I had to blush
0: yeah. on page three of your book.
2: <laughs> Did you? Ooh. Oh, oh, it's a bit hot. No, but that's what I wanted. It was all like... I wanted to express that the inner workings of being woman. That was so important to me. Also, the lack of confidence. Like, yeah, maybe I did pick up the electric guitar and start playing it. But now all of a sudden I become the first woman to play electric guitar. I was just a person trying to do something. But at the same time, I was constantly being reminded of my womanhood um when clinton walker was saying uh you were one of the first women in 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 the 1960s and 70s in commercial music to be writing songs i was not i mean carol king was doing it and people like that but you know like it's all i'm when you this person that's the first woman that's done this or there was women in the band that weren't just singing and there's so much focus on you as a woman so it was very front and center of my world was being a woman doing things that women didn't normally do and that's really at the very center of another song about love but I didn't want it to be a real a star is torn book and I didn't want you know the the heights of it to sort of be like that. There's so many of those stories. I just wanted it to be really down home, at home. You know, they do rehearsals around kids' nappies and stuff. <laughs> that sense of the banal, you know, uh, and 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 she's sexually active. Lily is sexually active, and she 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 likes sex. There's
0: also that yeah. level of vulnerability which is outlaid in the first chapter as well. What I picked up straight away with is the vulnerability of monogamy but within two pages you're reminded of the other dangers within not being within.
2: Yes, that's that's definitely a trope too which is where all the songs come from. They work around all of that too. So the, the title, Another Song About Love, and the, the lyrics of that song is all about being a musician singing songs about love and not being able to find it in your own world.
0: 72 years on the planet, do you think you've been able to discover what love actually is apart from a gesture, apart from a platitude?
2: I wouldn't say I've discovered a a singular notion of what love is. I think love takes many forms. Uh, I know what the feeling is. (laughs) I don't think that it necessarily means one thing or another, but I am a child of the 60s, so I see love as being revolutionary, actually.
0: And you'd also be aware when it's been taken away from you as well at those times throughout your life.
2: Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah, definitely. It plays a part negatively and positively in everything that all of us do in our lives all the time.
0: How Um, do you then musically interpret that friction and fraction of that very feeling through to the songs that you release?
2: Oh, well, it's a combination. The music is very important to me. There's a lot of, I don't know if you've heard, listened to them all, but there, there's quite a lot of musical difference in it. And, so, and the softer, more gentler songs are, are about that aspect of love, whereas um, another song about love is very riffy and more... Mm.
0: Very much in the, the bathrooms of the pub.
2: <laughs> yes, so to speak. Oh, oh just like it's a—it's got. I learned how to do write a song with a good riff, being in stiletto. That is one of the very positive things I got. I learned so much from being in that band about playing, how to play a riff, how to write a song around a riff. So, stoned was another one, and like stones, another form of love. But really, some people have said to me they were a bit worried about the the title being stoned and that it might be read as some kind of uh, moral stand on drug-taking or something. It's not. It's really just an exploration about how people use drugs to communicate, to be able to communicate, but often don't, and that's what that chapter also is about.
0: Focusing now on the novel and how it fits in it is in terms of how, it said it was about the sense of community and connection, having your five bushy plants that, uh, yes. that, that were yours, and when other people were sort of, taking advantage of your crops, those kind of metaphors as well, which I'm sure happened in communal housing.
2: Oh, yeah. Look, there's a theme that runs through the whole novel that comes out of my, my need, my political opinion that drugs should be legalised. And that, and that is like not because... Not because I'm a, like a really these days, pretty much a teetotaler. I hardly ever do it, drink alcohol or do anything. But I believe that the way in which drugs in general, but marijuana in particular, have been framed, have been like it's been criminal. You know, like Johan Hari's Chasing the Scream. I don't know if you've read that book, but it's an amazing book about the politics behind marijuana and how it's been demonized since the early 20th century by America. And what happened, it's really, it's, it, isn't it? he just does a really good case. But I'm one of those people who believes that if we were able to legalise drug taking, then we could get down to treating people for addiction because there's no doubt that the war on drugs has failed. And I suppose what I've given to Lily as the main protagonist is somebody who's got this sort of ethics about not selling not putting a value, not putting a monetary value on her plants, but she but people keep bargaining with her about it all the way along, you know to the point where to to her detriment and to the point where she loses it all.
0: one of the other themes of the book of your life, maybe still in your heart, is that of the ocean. When were you first connected with the ocean? what's some of those fond memories that have stuck with you over the decades
2: uh, that's probably the most autobiographical aspect of the book because I grew up in the early years by the ocean I love the ocean I don't really I'm not so much a swimmer in the ocean as loving to be by the ocean and feel the ocean I use that kind of return to the ocean as a theme around the connectedness of us all you know with community and with each other but um The ocean played a big part in my early childhood life, my sort of happiest times, I think. And I did, as what happens in the book, move to Melbourne at a young age and uh, hankered for the ocean most of my life. One of the reasons I came up here was to get to be by the ocean again, but I'm not. I'm actually inland because it costs a lot of money to live by the ocean.
0: The other thing about the ocean in comparison to rivers they're very musical in their own right compared to rivers. Rivers do have their, their songs. I'm not saying they don't, but but oceans have a very rhythmic and louder song to tell.
2: Oh, they do. And in, in, interestingly enough, because my son Tamlin has the same love of the ocean, or maybe I instilled it in him, and we wrote the second song, The Ocean in Me, together. He wrote the music and I wrote the words of that song. and what i said to him i sent him the words and i said what i want is like the sound of the ocean how it pulls you to it how the, the feeling of water running over rocks and the sound of of the waves coming into shore and i actually think that's exactly what he managed to get in that song
0: what was the first record that you bought with your own money very much a rock quiz question oh. i am quite aware
2: <laughs> oh and, and how
0: good is Rockwiz? What a fine television program that I love is.
2: that show. I always watch it. And I do know this and it's, it's just suddenly gone out of my head. The Diamonds, and I forget the name of the album, but it's got... Come walking past your house. Late last night all the shades were pulled and drawn. Way down tight. It's Silhouettes in the shade. That's, that's the name of that track. And I'm not sure if that's, if that's what it's called, but that was my first record here. Beautiful album, very 50s, 60s sort of bluesy rock and roll, which is an underpinning of my whole, like as a young girl, I used to put together my own prediction for the top 10 hits. I was absolutely obsessed with the radio and with music on the radio. And would write out my own lists, and you know, I had a transistor that my father gave me, and I listened to it.
0: Let's talk about the radio briefly, and your listening of Three UZ as a child.
2: The songs of those times, I used to make up. Um, uh, I used to, always in those songs, I was the main protagonist.
0: So by being the protagonist of these songs, was that the seed, the germination of you becoming a songwriter yourself that you could put yourself in could those? Could
2: have been because I wanted to write my own stories, I suppose. I was just trying to think of the song that really did it for me. But, yeah, all, all of those and all the 60s girls groups with all the harmonies, that was the other side of for me musically. I love harmonies. So the Everly Brothers, Buddy Holly, that kind of thing with, you know, people singing harmonies. I had a, a girlfriend that we used to sing all of Buddy Holly's songs <laughs> and things together, you know. The two girls playing well, learning to play guitar. <laughs> let's
0: talk about harmony and all girl harmony. What are you doing with it on a Tuesday these days?
2: Oh I've got this band, or it's not my band, it's the three three women, Janie, Timmy and Karen, Tatika. two two letters from it names and we sing songs or most of them in three-part harmony so not necessarily lead singer with backup vocals so we do do that a little bit but all like three-part harmony songs british ballads to cosby stills nash and young to our own things and some unaccompanied songs as well yeah it's 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 harmonies and uh, you know i was in the magicals at school so That's when I first started to really like harmony. And then the 50s and 60s commercial music, if there were women singing, there was mostly harmonies. It played a big part in my life that way.
0: What music are you now listening to? What tunes or artists are ticking the boxes from Janie now?
2: I still listen to a lot of reggae, mainly from the 1980s. And so, yeah, I was listening to Rita Marley the other day just love that woman and the way she sings and and her songs. Um, I don't know, I listen to a lot of music. I, I can't say that there's anything really influencing me so much as just music in general.
0: Coming from such a musical family as you have, have you ever considered to get the whole family together for a massive band or is this as close as we'll get to that?
2: In the, we've done it quite a few times. I don't know about... I don't know about now because of my brother Jim. His ability to play is really limited and it's very hard for him. I'm wondering how, you know, if we are able to go back on stage and have live music. I want to do a launch in Sydney with all the musicians that played on the CD and do, do something like I'd just love to have the chance to play with them all together again. And, uh Uh, how we actually organise Jim to be able to do that might be quite difficult. I've played with Mick quite a few times in various situations, particularly when he comes up here. We had an anniversary of the Aquarius Festival, a 40-year one, and I sang with Mick for that. Over the years I've done a lot, but it's mostly me sitting in with them and Mick's got a very specific kind of music that he does so he's not necessarily going to sit in on my music
0: in the way that Jim can. Uh, Is there a little bit of a cappella from one of the songs from the album you'd like to share with us as we round out today?
2: And now that it's time for you to go, I'm hoping that you, you'll always know that no matter where or how far you go, The ocean in me will follow. The ocean is deep. The ocean is wide. As constant as its restless tide. But as long as the waves and the shores collide. The ocean in me will be right by your side. The ocean in you, the ocean in me. Won't you come on down to the shore and see? The ocean in you, and the ocean in me.
0: Dr. <laughs> Janie Conway Heron, thank you very much for joining Radio Notes.
2: Thank you.
1: Janie Conway Heron. Another Song About Love, name of both the book and accompanying album of original tunes. Find them online at JanieConwayHeron.com.
0: Well, hey, hey, this is Jeremy Neal, and I'm coming up on Radio Notes to talk all about life and my new album, We Were Trying to Make It Out. Thanks very much to our feature guest this time round, Janie Conway Heron. Next time, we'll be heading down to Melbourne to the story of Greville Records and, more directly, the life and times of musician Bill Tolson.
1: radionotespodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Murch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia.